Hi everyone, this is Yin, and welcome to Growth and Failure. This show highlights extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up. I'll have conversations with a wide range of profiles from entrepreneurs and athletes, investors to educators, you name it. I love hearing people's different journeys. For me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow come from the struggle, the pain, the defeat. And I hope hearing these stories inspire you to not fear that messy middle or failure, but rather motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. For more information, please visit growthandfailure.com for more updates. And please write a review if you can. They really do help other people find this show. Thanks for listening. This is the story of Diane Mulcahy, author, investor, educator, and advisor. On this episode, we discuss Diane's journey from traveling the world, being a venture capital investor, an academic lecturer, an author of the fantastic book, The Gig Economy, and maximizing her career in the gig economy. One question I had for her and we discuss further is her goals. And we talk about the ultimate goal for her, which is to live an interesting life. Well, what does that mean? I mean, that that's the fantastic thing that we discuss is it could mean anything. And for Diane, it means to constantly learn, constantly do, to travel the world, and to not live a life in a way that's conventional or dependent on what people think that she should do. I love that. Welcome to her world of the gig economy. I hope her profile and her book inspire you to be reflective, as it has for me, and to define for yourself what success means for you. Please enjoy this interview with the fantastic Diane Mulcahy. Hi, Diane. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you for joining. I'm excited. The listeners in our audience would have heard your shorter version of your background and your bio before this. And I would love to get into that a little bit further. But first, I'd like to thank Grace Reyes for this introduction. She was so kind and helpful and encouraging us to meet. So thank you to Grace for the introduction. You wrote a wonderful book that I just finished. Before we talk about the gig economy, can you rewind your highlight reel and talk about where you grew up? So I grew up outside of Boston in a town called Bill Ricca. So I would say a fairly typical suburban upbringing and really spent my whole childhood there. We never moved. We grew up in the same house, which my mother only sold about two years ago. So it was a very stable childhood. My parents were fairly typical. My dad worked at the phone company. He started working right after high school and worked his way up into management. And my mother was an executive assistant for her career. Did you have any early passions of being an entrepreneur or writing? I did have early passions around writing. I was one of those kids that was a huge reader. I would go to the library and come out with an enormous stack of books on a regular basis. And I also was really into art and I took ballet lessons. I suppose that's pretty common for, for young girls. And I did. I was always kind of a writer doodler when I was a kid. I had this journal, which was called the nothing book, which somebody gave to me when I was in middle school. And basically it was a book with blank pages and I would just open it up and I would write a poem or I would write an essay or a short story. So I guess that was my first experience in terms of starting to write. Love that. And so fast forward a little bit, where did you go to college? How did you choose it? 
I went to Harvard undergrad. I grew up in Boston, so that was always the aspiration. And I remember when my parents would take us into the city on a Sunday, a little outing, you know, a family outing to go do something fun. We would drive by Harvard along Memorial Drive and I would look at it and think, I'm going to go there someday (laughs) without, of course, realizing anything about it. What did you study in undergrad? Well, I arrived at undergrad as a pre-med major. I had always wanted to be a doctor and I was really interested in medicine. And I took my first pre-med bio class and I thought, this is not for me. And I became a bio psych major. So I was a psychology major, but I focused on the brain and behavior and did biopsychology classes and worked in an animal lab over the summer. And then I transitioned to, I feel like college students always have multiple stories about what they ended up studying. But then in my sophomore year, I took my first economics class and life was never the same. And I switched to really focusing on the intersection between psychology and economics, which is now called behavioral economics, but at the time was psychological economics. And I did my junior paper on the stock market and how the behavior of large traders influenced the market. After undergrad, I went to a consulting firm. I thought it would be a great way to gain just a variety of work experiences. I think what's different is because of my interest in healthcare and medicine, I ended up going to a healthcare consulting firm. So I was able to work on only projects that were related to the healthcare industry and reforming the healthcare industry. So I really enjoyed that. It seems like you had an interest in all business, all markets with economics, with healthcare and broader consulting, and then overlay the psychology interest. And so what did you do after the healthcare consulting? I did an analyst role at a consulting firm for about two and a half or three years. And then I went back to graduate school. So I went back to Harvard to the Kennedy School for a master in public policy. And I focused on healthcare, obviously. So I studied healthcare policy and then also studied public finance. That was the other area of focus. So I spent about a semester at the School of Public Health. And then the rest of the time I worked learning about more of the finance side of public policy. I had this idea when I went back to graduate school that you know the reason I was going back was to really hone my quantitative skills which I think I did do, I had looked at getting an MBA and decided not to do that because I felt like they were commoditized. And I just thought an MPP degree was more interesting. It's basically an MBA for people who want to be in the policy world. And I was always attracted to the idea of immersing myself in really big ideas. Afterwards, I went back into healthcare consulting and then immediately figured out that Working on government-related projects, which are what healthcare projects really are, you can't get away from that. It's either, you know, you're working at the state level or the federal level, was just too slow for me. It wasn't moving quickly enough. And I started looking for a way to transition to the private sector. But I wanted to stay in healthcare. I still found the industry really interesting. So I found this position for an analyst at a venture capital firm in the healthcare practice of a venture capital firm. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. So I called one of my friends who had gone to business school and I said, what's venture capital? (laughs) 
And so she explained to me what it was. And I thought, well, that sounds kind of interesting. And so I applied and, and ended up transitioning into venture capital, not the normal trajectory, but one that really worked for me. Amazing. And so how long were you a venture capital investor? And then I know for a couple of years, you actually traveled the world. So I want to talk about that if that happened around the same time. Yeah, I mean, I was a I was a VC investor for almost a decade. So I worked at a couple of different places, but that ended up being something I was sustainably interested in. So I did that for a while. In terms of traveling, I took a year off during college to travel. At the time, I didn't really want to study abroad, but I wanted to go abroad. I grew up you know, I was fairly sheltered, grew up in the Boston area. I didn't travel a lot as a kid. I had never been overseas. And I really wanted to make that part of my college experience. But didn't want to go abroad and live in one place and study. So I took a year off and traveled all over Europe. It's kind of the quintessential, you know, backpack around and, and find yourself kind of story. And then the second time, when I left my first VC role, my fiance, now husband, and I both quit our jobs and took a year off. And we traveled to Africa and Australia and Asia, places that we thought when you're building a career it, it are really hard to get to in the normal two to three week vacation that people take. So we thought, well, we'll just take a year off. We'll travel all over. We'll get those locations out of the way. We'll do that now and then go back and build our careers. And that's what we did. And we got married in the middle of it. Um, so you didn't have to honeymoon. That was like your annual whole process honeymoon. That was the honeymoon. Essentially, the honeymoon was the year off. Yes. Yeah. I love that. So you wrote a fantastic book, The Gig Economy. And I love the subtitle also, The Complete Guide to Getting Better Work, Taking More Time Off, and Financing the Life You Want. How did you start thinking about the gig economy? And what was the catalyst behind that? I really started thinking about the gig economy back when I had my first consulting job out of college. When I first started working, people were giving me advice and they were saying to me, you know, the key to figuring out what you want to do with your career is when you're working, stop and look around and figure out whose job do you want? Like which direction do you want to go in and then point yourself in that direction? And in general, I think that's great advice. But what happened to me was when I got to this consulting firm, I looked around and I thought, I don't want any of those jobs. They just looked sort of terrible to me. People were working crazy hours. They worked all the time. And it just didn't seem that efficient or, or interesting. And I was also, after coming from a really rich, interesting college experience, I felt limited by the fact that I had to focus on only one thing and I could really, I really only had time to do one thing. And I always imagined that I wanted to be able to build a professional life where I could pursue a variety of projects. And I had no clear vision about how to do that. I mean, I was in my first job out of college, but I'd say that the seed was planted in that first job. And then I shelved all of that because when you're an analyst out of college, you have zero leverage <laughs> to change the way things are done. So I just continued working the traditional jobs until I got to a point in my career that I could start to shape what my work life looked like, where I had the leverage to do that. 
Can you, for those who don't know, and I know it's a phrase and a term used widely, but it seems like the definition varies, but can you share, starting off with what is the gig economy to you? To me, the gig economy is working independently. So it can include people who are working independently full-time, like they're an independent contractor or a consultant or an advisor or a freelancer of some sort or an on-demand worker. All of those fall into the gig economy. It's not just Uber. You know, I always like to emphasize the way that I define it is that it crosses so many education, income, and industry levels. It's very, very broad. I also include people who work a side gig. So you might have a full-time job and then you work independently outside of that, doing something else that you're interested in or passionate about. So I include that in the gig economy as well, the way that I talk about it. Why do you think the definition varies so widely? It varies widely because it's so new. People are really trying to get their hands around it. It's also continuously evolving. So I think what was most new when the gig economy term came into vogue, came into the mainstream, was the platforms. So I think people really focused on that. They focused on Uber. They focused on TaskRabbit and Upwork and Fiverr because that was the new technologically advanced way of working. But working independently as somebody who is self-employed or working as an independent contractor has been around for a long time. And somebody who works that way is no different in many ways than someone who works on a platform. What are your thoughts on a job versus work? Well, my overarching thought is that work is the future, jobs are the past. I think increasingly we're going to see companies organize the work that they have to get done, not necessarily as a full-time job, but more as projects and tasks and assignments that people can do independently. So I think increasingly work is going to look a lot more fluid and dynamic and will be based on the actual work that needs to be done rather than trying to package it up, organize it and fit it into a full-time job and then try to hire one person to do that. I think that's going to be increasingly outdated. Do you think there's any type of negative impact? So it sounds like your concept of work is accommodating and evolving, which is great versus a job is just something in the past and it's very black and white in terms of structure and time and schedule and, and lack of flexibility. But do you think there's any negative impact? And what I mean by that is At a job, you generally have an ecosystem that gives you feedback or reviews. And in this newer world of the gig economy, it's really something that you can set your own path and there's a lot of freedoms to it. But I'm thinking about it in the context of feedback and people and social dynamic. Do you think of there any negative consequences to that? Let's talk about a knowledge worker, you know, somebody who's in marketing or finance or management consulting and they go out on their own. I mean, that person still gets plenty of feedback because they're working on projects for clients that give them feedback by either continuing to work with them or not continuing to work with them. And in addition, giving them feedback while they're doing the project. When people hire independent workers, they are generally speaking incredibly focused on results. So they're hiring somebody to do a thing and they really care about what that thing is. So during the course of the project, all eyes are on the thing. They're on the results, the deliverable, the value. 
And there's a lot of attention paid to that and feedback given. I feel like in many ways, that's very different from a full-time job where you can really get away in many cases with falling short on expectations around delivering results, but maybe making up for it in terms of being politically savvy or being very well-liked or playing some other important role in the company dynamics. So I think there's still feedback that independent workers get no question. I also think the fact that an independent worker is constantly out in the marketplace, pitching, getting new projects, working for different clients, they really are much more up to speed on what the market is looking for, what the market expects, what the market demands, than somebody who has been working at the same company for a decade or even five years. That person is fairly insulated from the market because they only have to really worry about what does the company expect of me and what does the company need from me. So the feedback loop is much narrower and more specific. In terms of the social skills, I would argue that working independently and working in a full-time job is not materially different in the sense that for most projects that independent workers are going to be working on, they're interacting with people. They're part of some kind of project team. And so they're interacting with their clients, with the team while they're on the project. Most independent workers are running their own business. So they also build a team. It might not be a team of full-time employees, but they will be managing a part-time bookkeeper and a social media person and somebody who helps them out with marketing and business development. So even though they're working independently, they are still working with other people to help them run their business in most cases, not in all cases, but in most cases. So there's still plenty of professional interactions with colleagues and social interactions that develop the same way as for an employee. COVID-19 is certainly brought on a lot of impacts, some negative, some positive in the sense of getting closer to family, having time, quality time with yourself in certain projects. But what do you think some of the implications are coming from that through the gig economy? What we've seen is so many layoffs and people have, I think this pandemic has really driven home the true fact of our economy, which is that there is no job security at all. And so many people lost their jobs, they lost their single source of income, and have turned to the gig economy as a safety net. I'm not saying it's comfortable or ideal, but they have been forced to start working independently and figuring out what they're going to do on their own to generate an income. And for many people, there's no turning back. They feel more secure with having diverse income streams, having multiple clients, They feel safer in that kind of environment and like being in control of their work life. So I think it's accelerated the number of people who are working in the gig economy, either on the side or as a full-time gig. And of course, as everybody's talking about, it has massively accelerated the movement towards remote work. One of the big barriers for companies in terms of hiring independent workers previously was that they felt uncomfortable having somebody that wasn't in the office, that they didn't have full control over, they couldn't tell them where they had to be and when. And so they preferred to work for employees that they could mandate, had to come into the office, and that they could see them all day. I think now 
every company has gotten used to managing people who are remote, working with people who are remote. They understand, you know, what they do well, where they need to improve, what the benefits are, what they need to watch for. And I think going forward for most companies, their talent pool and where they look to find talent will be much broader. Remote work is here, it's here to stay. And I think that makes it much easier for people to work independently because it only widens your pool of opportunities. I mean, if I'm sitting here in Boston, if every tech company in San Francisco says that people can work remotely from wherever they want, I'm as equal a candidate to work there as somebody who's in the Bay Area. That's an incredible shift in the labor market. It's really exciting in my view. I feel like I could ask you like hours and hours more questions about the gig economy and just your work there. But first, I wanted to touch a little bit on your experience at Babson College. So you are an adjunct lecturer there. What was the catalyst behind you joining as a lecturer and what's the course about? When I moved back to Boston, I had in my head that I wanted to start teaching. You know, I've always really enjoyed academia. I feel very much at home at a university And I had in mind that I wanted to find a university home for myself in Boston. And when I moved here, the provost at Babson was somebody I knew through some community work that I had done. And she said, oh, well, you're back. Please come to Babson. And I went out and met with her. And she immediately started inviting me to become involved in speaking on panels and judging business plan competitions, just participating in campus life. And then when I indicated an interest in teaching, they said, well, we want you to teach here. And I started by teaching in the MBA program in the entrepreneurship division, teaching core courses, you know, so the ones that already had a syllabus, everybody had to take them. That was often where new adjunct lecturers started teaching. And after I did that for a couple of years, I created this course on the gig economy and started offering it as an experimental course. And then after it was offered a few times and was successful, it became a permanent elective. That's fantastic. And how long have you been a lecturer there? Gosh, I've been there about nine years. I usually ask this at the very end if we haven't covered it, and we haven't. (laughs) The name of the show is Growth From Failure. And usually at this point, a lot of my guests would have talked about some struggle or adversity or hardship and even failure that they've come across. And your story seems so expansive in the sense of you really wanted to try different things and learn different things and experiment with different disciplines, whether it's psychology or healthcare within venture capital or within consulting. What have you struggled at? What are some of the things that you can share from that perspective? That's a great insight. I do have a wide variety of interests and I'm, I'm always trying new things. I think there are two areas I can point to. One is not so much failure, but I think I think there's a lot of fear and risk associated with taking big leaps and pursuing stretch goals. And when I took a year off and traveled around the world, that was, I know it sounds kind of luxurious and amazing, but it was also a real growth opportunity for me, somebody who had never left the country and was going off for a year to be in all these new environments that I had never been in and had no skills to kind of cope with. I think those kinds of experiences really help us stretch and grow. And they certainly did for me. And it was not without fear and it was not without feeling like I was taking a huge risk. 
And it wasn't without, you know, things going wrong. And I have plenty of stories I can talk about there. You know, nothing terrible happened. It was a good experience. But I think growth can come from really positive events that we set out to accomplish. So I always like to point that out. It doesn't always have to be something that happened to us or something that was terrible. It can be a situation that we create to open up opportunities for our own growth. So that's one thing. I think in terms of failure and hardship, I think it's important to acknowledge that when you work independently, you are constantly pitching, you're constantly hustling, you're constantly putting yourself out in the world, pursuing new opportunities. And the consequence of doing that is constant rejection. It's unavoidable. And when I talk to people who move from being a full-time employee to working independently, oftentimes the ones that want to go back to being a full-time employee cite that as the reason why. It's a very difficult situation to put yourself in a position where you are constantly pitching for opportunities, being judged by somebody else, and then being accepted or rejected on an ongoing basis. I mean, when you change jobs every four or five years, that's painful, but at least you have a breather in between. When you work independently, you really don't. And I think that has really... I've had to learn how to cope with that. And that's been a big growth opportunity. I actually have a writer friend and she has a really healthy way of looking at that. She, at the beginning of the year, sets out a goal for the number of rejections that she wants to get. So like this year was the year of a hundred rejections. And what I love about that, which I've sort of embraced mentally myself, is that it acknowledges that this is a numbers game. You're not going to get every opportunity, even if you're super qualified. Everybody has different agendas. Everybody has different things going on in the background that you can't see. Having the best qualifications doesn't always mean you're going to win. There might be other factors at play that you have no idea what they are. And you just can't take it personally. You have to just keep focused on your own goals and just getting back up at the plate and taking the next swing. There's just no way around it. So as somebody who was shy and introverted and very achievement oriented, those were hard lessons to learn. But I feel like that framework has been really helpful for me in terms of normalizing rejection and failure in my day-to-day life. I love that. Well, I might steal the the hundred failures for next year and see <laughs> see how that goes. Just because I, I agree with your friend's assessment, you learn so much from it, and in part, that's you know kind of like the show where so much of the growth that we talk about with our guests comes from all these mini or, or larger failures and struggles or bits of adversity and rejection, as you said. And so I love that. And that's one of the things I loved about your book is it it allowed me to think creatively and not just in this framework that I was brought to believe like I have to have one path and there's one structure and this allowed me to think no you could actually do a lot more creative things and it's not just one path for everybody and that's what I think is a hard struggle to get out of is if you're raised a certain way which I was there's only one narrow path and that's the path you take and you don't change that or deviate from the path and so that book really helped me from that perspective. Well and I see that all the time in my students I mean I teach in an MBA program, right? These are students who have successfully followed the narrow path their whole lives. And then they get into this class where we basically blank slate their entire lives and start rebuilding it. And it's amazing 
the things that my students do. After going through that six-week exercise, you know, I find it really, really inspiring. There's one task that I have difficulty doing, well, many tasks. One of them is coming up with a subtitle for somebody. So, and it's interesting because usually it's just one, right? People are so used to one category. So you are an investor, you're an author, you're an educator, you're a Kaufman fellow, you're all of those things. And what I love about the gig economy and what you're sharing is that it's not just one, you know, there's multiple commas in someone's description. And I think that's to the point where I'm getting now, but it took me a long time to realize that I could do multiple things and it was hard for me to transition to, but that's what I love about just the gig economy generally and the mindset associated with it. I agree. And and I do think that mindset is really catching on. And I think it's partly an acknowledgement that we are much more than what we do during the day. Even people who are employees have other often really interesting things, you know, passions, hobbies, other things that they like to do on the side. And I think there's something really empowering and also very interesting about owning and naming those interests and putting them out there. And I think I'm so excited to see that that's become accepted and normalized. I love that. So going back to you, because I just, I love your energy. And so who or what inspires you? I would say what inspires me is big ideas. I love being in the world of big ideas. And I think that was one of the things that attracted me to healthcare is huge. Venture capital is all about making big disruptive changes. And writing about something like the gig economy, a huge restructuring in the way we work, our labor market, how we build our professional lives. Those are the areas that really excite and challenge and inspire me. I think at a human level, what I was a little bit alluding to earlier, seeing some of the things that my students are just an example, but like watching some of the ways that people completely restructure their lives and reinvent themselves, I find so inspiring. I think it's incredibly courageous to do something like that. And it feels so authentic and brave for somebody to take a look at their very conventional life where they follow the narrow path, they're heavily invested, and just tear it down and recreate something that looks amazing and interesting and exciting. But that is not without loss and risk and fear and courage. And I I just really find that super impressive. It's inspiring. It it really is. I mean, just hearing that description inspires me. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have a mentor or role model along the way, whether personally or professionally? No, I mean, I think at this point in the conversation, it's no surprise to you that I didn't have a single mentor or role model. But what I am always doing is kind of scanning the horizon and looking for people that I think are doing really interesting things or things I haven't thought of. For example, the idea of teaching, of becoming an adjunct lecturer, I got from a neighbor of mine. When I moved to Boston, my neighbor across the street was an adjunct lecturer at MIT. And he used to regale us of all these stories about how he would go guest lecture at the Sorbonne in Paris for their J term, or he would go guest lecture at these interesting universities. And I thought, I want to do that. I want to go to Paris for a semester. And I want, I want to be able to travel places and 
bring myself to a university and have an immediate intellectual home and community of people, I want access to that. And that was the inspiration for me pursuing an adjunct lecturer role was to put myself in that ecosystem and be able to access opportunities like that. So I'm always looking around for people who are doing things where I think I want to do that. I love that. And your book had a lot of inspirational stories like that and tips. And that was the best part of the book is it wasn't just sharing how you did it, but it was more of a guide, which I really enjoyed. What are you most proud of so far? The unconventional things I've done. I'm really proud of the time I've taken off. I'm proud that I made the time to do that, that I created the time to do that, made it a priority, saved up so that I could do it financially, and then executed it. I feel really proud of that. Those are some of my biggest accomplishments. I feel really proud of Also, a lot of the writing that I've done. Writing is an act of overcoming fear of putting your ideas out in public. And, you know, I've put out ideas that are provocative, that aren't necessarily mainstream, that aren't widely accepted. And I feel really proud that I was able to do that, to articulate the ideas, and that I was able to put them out for public consumption. And in some cases, change conversations. Fantastic. What's next for Diane Mulcahy? You know, I have a couple things in mind for 2021. Nothing I'm talking about yet, but I think there'll be definitely more writing. I have another area of interest that I've been exploring for a long while that I might start to do some work in 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 2021 in a more serious way. And yeah, a couple of other changes. The gig economy changes the framework of how we have relationships with colleagues, with our jobs, with a paycheck, with the structure of a nine to five, does that change the way you think about career goals or personal goals for yourself? And, you know, I grew up with my brother saying, okay, what's your three-year plan, your five-year plan, your seven-year plan, and what is it monetarily? And if by the age of 30 or 40, you want to make X amount, and that has gone away. And and thankfully for me, but how do you think about career progression or personal growth and goals, if you do at all? I think about that very deeply and a lot. And in fact, the first chapter of my book is all about defining your own success and coming up with what are your goals, not everybody else's goals, not the easiest, most visible goals that you can go for that everybody's going for, not your parents' goals, not your teachers, not your boss, but what are your goals? And getting to that, it sounds easy and glib and a little bit cliche to say it, But that's honestly where the hard work is. And that's why it's the first chapter, because honestly, that's where you have to start is to sit down and figure out for yourself, which requires reflective work, figure out for yourself, what are my goals? What does success look like to me? Like, what does it feel like? What does it look like? What are the values and priorities that I really care about that I want to make sure I'm living in my life, my professional, my personal life? It doesn't matter. My professional life has to allow for those if they're personal life goals. So that's really where where to begin. And then once you have those clarified, you can start building a professional and a personal career around them. I feel like, unfortunately, the way that life is structured normally, it's the other way around. You know, you're trying to get the degree, you're trying to get the job, the title, the financial goal. 
And the problem with that is the goalpost keeps moving. As we achieve, we want to set the next goal. And it, I think it's very common to defer our real goals, you know, what would be truly meaningful and satisfying in favor of these other traditional markers of success. And what I really argue is the opposite. And what are your goals for yourself? At the highest level, my goal has been to live an interesting life. I always wanted to live in a way that wasn't completely conventional. I was never attracted to the get a full-time job, climb the corporate ladder, get a house in the suburbs kind of lifestyle. That was never for me. And so I've designed a life that looks very different from that. I work independently. I do a lot of different things. I live in the city. I travel all the time. I don't have a traditional family structure. I mean, I really have designed an unconventional life, which stems from the things that are important to me. I wanted to be able to pursue things that were interesting to me, constantly be meeting new people, challenging myself. I wanted flexibility and autonomy. I wanted to be able to travel and be geographically agnostic and You know, I wanted to do well financially, but I was never an income maximizer. I was never a person who said, you know, I have to have the most money or I have to have the biggest goal. I was happy if I didn't have to worry too much about money. Absolutely love that. And I I haven't heard that concept before of being an income maximizer. I think that's how my parents raised me. And it's a foreign concept to not think money first and where you're going to get your food and, and your financial goals. But I love that you for me, have the ultimate goal is to live an interesting life. And that means a lot of different things other than work. And that could be a part of it. But I love how you think about it so deeply. Well, it turns out too, you can live a pretty interesting life without being the person with the most money at the end of the day. You need some money, obviously. But and that's one of the interesting things in my class is that when students start putting down their wildest dreams about what their life could look like, many times what they realize is, actually, this is totally doable because what I want is cheaper. I mean, when you're not living in the middle of an expensive city, driving to work every day and buying all kinds of clothes and taking expensive vacations because you only have two weeks, there's a lot of wiggle room and flexibility to design something that looks pretty amazing at a reasonable price. Love that. Well, Diane, I had a great time speaking with you. This was so fun. Where can people find out more about you? The best place is to just go to my website, which is dianemulcahy.com. I have a monthly newsletter you can sign up for, and I publish my podcast interviews and articles and other media interviews there. Great. Well, Diane, thank you so much. This was a treat. Well, thanks so much for having me. I love your personal questions. Awesome. Awesome.